What's up, internet? I'm super stoked about this episode because I found one of my old presentations from last year on the functional movement screen. So this is actual continuation, like a part two to my part one of why the functional movement screen or any kind of assessment is really, really the cornerstone, the foundation of every coach out there in order to bring a client to success. So I will link up the part one to this in the show notes. So hit that if you want to listen to that first. If not, here it is. I start at, I believe, the shoulder and work my way through the FMS. I also have a couple people in the room with me asking questions. So this is going to be a great way to kind of get everything together. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. All right. One of my favorite ways to describe the shoulder mobility test is literally that first sentence where the shoulder mobility test demonstrates a natural harmonized rhythm of the scapular thoracic region. So what that means is in order for someone to use their shoulder, their scapula has to have a really good relationship with their thoracic spine. A lot of times those, those two things don't move really well with general population because they're in this posture all freaking day and that scapula kind of gets stuck onto the thoracic spine. So they're gonna find mobility elsewhere to be able to do this and it's usually every single rep to get there, right? So anytime there's an injury, how I explain to patients, it's like one joint's not moving properly, so the joint below or above is gonna take up the grunt of the work and it's usually not designed to do that. So if you look at like anatomy, your scapula kind of floats on top of thoracic spine. And in here, we have like 17 intrinsic muscles that have to work all together at the same time for you to do this stuff, this stuff, this stuff. And when those things don't work, things like, when I give like shoulder cards to a patient and they come up, they're all good, and then they start rotating and then this happens. <laughs> or this happens, right? So like now they've taught their trap to be hyperactive, to only move the scapula when really it should not be moving at certain points of this, um, scapular rhythm. And then people are like, oh yeah, my traps are always tight. I always go for massage and nothing's working. It's like, well, fuck, make your shoulders move better, right? That's like literally what the issue is. Um, so when you do the mobility test, there's a, anyway, um, this mobility test for the, shoulder, we're checking like active range of motion of external and internal rotation of both the shoulders at the same time. And you'll always kind of like when we go into it, when I show people, I tell them to always kind of make a mental mark of where the top hand ends up and where the bottom hand ends up in this position. And then when you switch to the other side, see where it kind of falls mm -hmm. into an asymmetrical pattern. Um, So this is a good one, poor round shoulder syndrome, leaving the glenohumeral joint and scapula restricted and not able to perform as intended. So a lot of people that we see are kind of like this. So now that shoulder joint, glenohumeral joint, should not be there. So this is where um, this concept of joint centration, in order to use your shoulder properly from this position, you need to suck in hat. You can come through. Okay, sorry, I'm gonna take a little You're on camera too, say Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
say on like joint centration. So if I told someone to deadlift like this with their shoulders, probably not gonna feel good on the rest of their body. But if you told them to centrate their shoulder joint and pack it in, it's probably gonna work a little bit better. Um, so the so wait, what did you do there? Because your you kind of pulled it back, but then your shoulder blade like stuck out. Yeah, so like that was like an exaggeration. So like oh. that would be like scapular winging, but essentially the shoulder, for it to work properly for any kind of movement, you want it to be centrated yeah, okay. in the center, right? Yeah. Just like if you, a lot of people don't understand how to do that. Like I see, like pull the shoulders back, and like they don't. Again, there's also like mostly teaching of proper movement. Um, that's why I use the Turkish getup a lot, and usually the first thing I teach them is like when you're laying down on the Turkish getup, yeah. you need to have that. Yeah. So what I do, and we can do it later when we get into like uh, how to do the FMS. Yeah. Good. Um, when a person's laying down in that initial position, I get them to hold my hand, and I tell them, okay, be super loose, and I can move their shoulder like no problem. And I'm like, now don't let me move you and squeeze my hand as hard as possible, and when I lift them, they come off the ground as one unit, mm. right? So if you think of the okay. barbell deadlift, squeeze the crap out of the bar, yeah. now the shoulder's gonna go in the right position. That's why I use so many carries with people, because if you took two heavy dumbbells or kettlebells, mm. this is not gonna feel good. So for, for uh, Happy, because she has, oh shit, that issue with your shoulder, um, it, you told her to rotate her... A little bit, yeah. Oh, just a little bit. Okay. Because her mm -hmm. issue is rotator cuff. Mm -hmm. If you're holding a kettlebell dumbbell and you go out into 20 degrees of abduction and external rotation, you're getting all of your rotators fired. Mm -hmm. Right? For the general population that don't have a rotator cuff issue, like you won't be able to go that heavy because if the rotator cuff is four muscles that are pretty small, yeah. but if you're down here with heavy weight, going into bad posture. What's, like, what's the difference though between like, you know how you told me to like, ex like pull out like that versus this? Is Cause like, if you look at how the rotator cuff muscles work, like if you externally rotate, um, I can't remember this correctly, uh, you'll have infraspinatus and supraspinatus turn on. When you go here, they don't turn on. Mm -hmm. So because her whole issue is her rotator cuff, I want all of them to be turned on at the same time. Yeah. Right? Um, so yeah, going back to like joint centration, one way that I teach them is the triggers get but also farmer care. So if I have heavy enough weight, falling into that bad posture is not going to feel good. So automatically the person goes here. And now I'm teaching them that this is a better position and then because we're holding something tight anytime you grip something tight it sends a signal up to the shoulder that hey we have something heavy let's get into a better position it's just like if i told someone to go pick up a hundred pound dumbbell off our rack they're not gonna go like this they're, not, they're, they're gonna brace everything it gets super tight and then drive up a lot of like training to make things feel and look better it's like create more tension in your body and things move in the way it should right uh, questions, thoughts, no? Um, so with the shoulder mobility test, um, so that's how it looks, and that's the clearance exam. So when I start the FMS, I ask people, give me every single injury you've had since the age of three. 
like from rolled ankles to like car accidents, everything. Like I try to figure out everything they have, and they're like, yeah, you know, I tore my rotator cuff in 2006. I did this, blah 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 blah. The clear test here that this guy Tony Jennifer is doing clears them for impingement. So essentially, if you put your um, palm on your shoulder without lifting it up. If you just drive the elbow up, and if you had like a torn rotator cuff or something going on with that shoulder, this would start pinching with pain. So if they get this as an automatic zero, you don't even bother trying this because it's probably going to hurt them. Mm. Right? So that's like, again, like if you find pain, that's when you like make a little note and like go see Sarah or Darren because they can figure out how to fix that. Um, yeah, so. There's some clearance tests throughout the FMS. This is one of the three, right? So you always start with this guy because like if someone has shoulder pain, I tell him to do this. It's probably gonna really piss off whatever injury they might have. But um, what would you call this? What is impingement? Impingement test. Oh. Yeah. Um, so essentially, how we do the mobility one uh, for the shoulders if they clear it, um, you get a measurement out of their hand. And uh, from the crease, like if you look at your wrist, everyone has that first crease. And that's where you put the dowel. And then the second piece of the dowel will go to the middle finger or whatever finger is longer. Right? Because everyone has a anatomy, a difference in anatomy. So like sometimes you'll find people that like their middle finger is actually not their longest. Yeah. So that's always the longest finger. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's like, oh my god, I'm a freak. <laughs> um, so yeah, essentially that would be the measurement. Okay. Right? Um, so. Of the space that you are allowed to have. Or that. So that would be the measurement you would take, and then whatever number that is, say it's 20. Yeah. When they go into the shoulder mobility, you're looking for at least 20. Okay. If there's yeah. anything beyond that, then you got some mobility, stability issues that you would have to address. All right. Um, so the active straight leg raise, this goes back to Russ that came in. Um, so a lot of people look at it as a flexibility test, but it's actually not. So if you look at um, the book movement that I mentioned, they go really, really in depth with what this test is. But essentially what we're looking for, yeah, um, is to identify the active mobility of the flex hip, but also includes the continuous core stability within the pattern of hip extension. So a good indicator you'll see a lot of times when people cheat in this is what the opposite leg is doing. So when the active leg like, raise happens, you just ask the person to lift their leg up as high as possible until you tell them to stop. But when people want to cheat this because they're trying to impress you, the opposite leg is what I'm looking at. So if there's some sort of like um, restriction in the hip or in some sort of stability of the hip and core, they'll open up the leg off to the side, and now the hips are a little bit more open to get a little bit further. So you're constantly looking at what the opposite hip is doing. And again, yeah, it is gonna test some sort of flexibility, but not so much the hamstring, but more like gastroc and soleus, if they can't get through there. So like for Russ, like um, if I had to score him, he would be at one on each side. So he has, again, no business deadlifting off the floor, that's probably why he had some sort of disc, disc issue when he was training at boot camp with that. Mm -hmm. Right? So if like you already knew that, like then you would that, have... that would have never happened. And I just told him, like, just elevate your deadlift and you'll be fine. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. Like it's that easy, like small so little it's changes. 
okay for when you're testing a straight leg, um, it for it to be bent for some people can't extend through. Well, like, again, like I want them to be straight, that's but if their natural thing is to like come up, and that's going to be a compensation pattern. Yeah. Like you already know that there's something, something. going on, mm -hmm. but again. This kind of goes back to the whole idea of like in the hurdle step when people kind of like over examine what's going on. It's like, can they do it or not? Yeah. But they don't have to go that high. Like, what if they can only go this high? So, again, it goes back to the measurement. So, we'll go through it when we start um, assessing each other. But yeah. essentially, it goes back to the individual. So, you grab the FMS stick, find the big bony part of your hip, from there to the middle part of your patella whatever the number is, say it's 40, you mark down on their thigh where the 20 mark is, and then their ankle bone has to pass that number in order to get a perfect score without any kind of compensation. Which is 90 degrees. A little bit below, like they usually say like another, actually I don't even know on the FMS stick if it's inches, centimeters, whatever, whatever their numerical what system is. What do you mean past that number? Like, past All right, let's get you on the floor. <laughs> I gotta go turn it high, so. Oh, Alright, so go two feet together. So imagine if I have the FMS dowel, yeah. find this guy, this guy, yeah. and measure the distance, say it's 40, and the 20 mark is here. Yeah. Usually, because you'll have a pen doing the um, marking, I'll put the pen down right here, mm -hmm. and then when I ask you to lift this leg without any compensation, this bone would have to uh, get to that okay. marker. Okay. Right, so again, it goes back to the individual. So it doesn't matter if someone's six foot five or okay, four foot five, yeah. right? Um, so a couple of things that I always see when people screw that up. So say if I was lying down, kind of going back to what happens with the foot. So say I'm testing this leg and I'm coming up. And then this starts happening, so I'm rolling my pelvis over to get more range. Mm -hmm. Or, because you'll also have the board underneath you, mm -hmm. they can also pop this knee up to also get a little bit more range. But they're not supposed to? Should be straight. Yeah. Okay. Right? The big thing that I see with the active straight leg raise is like, say um, one side is a lot better than the other, then it's a bigger issue. Mm -hmm. So anytime there's an asymmetry, that's like a kind of like a big red flag for me because like say now when they're deadlifting, if you know one leg has better active range of motion than the other, they might like again this would be an exaggeration, but like say as they're coming up, they're gonna shift over to the hip that's a little bit better to come back up and they have this weird kind of thing. So actually with like Russ when he squats, like he he has one worse hip than the other, so when he was going into the squat, he would lean this way and then come back in and then back up. So now when you're thinking in the classes, if he's doing barbell back squats, that's the position he's always going in. Again, I told him, like, not right there, and then that's where you're going to get injured, but like three months down the road, you're like, oh, why is this kind of like achy? Mm -hmm. And you have no idea why, right? And like he, um, so in the squat on the FMS, they want you to have your toes straight on purpose to really challenge hip mobility. So for him, the moment he started, like, by his second rep, his feet were, like, already this way. Because he's trying to really cheat for it. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, small things like that will pop up. Where you That's cheating? Oh, well, I guess for the FMS. For the FMS. Oh, okay. Okay. But when it comes to, like, actual squatting mechanics, you just find what works best for the person. Mm -hmm. Like, I would never get anyone squatting like that. It's just for the FMS. Okay. 
figuring out how it looks when they when we will eventually do the active circulatory phase. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Any questions on that though? Um, so the trunk stability push-up. So it tests a lot of things. So it wants to see how your body like stabilizes when it comes to the core and the pelvis. And it also tests your extension and rotation. And those are usually the compensation patterns you'll see in the T, I call that T push-up for short. Um, so for the trunk stability push-up, essentially how you test uh, how the core uh, works for the individual when it comes to stabilizing the spine in the sagittal plane is you'll actually set them up. So for men, it's a little bit higher than women, so you would get them with their thumbs like this and you would line it up at the top of their hairline. Mm -hmm. So the push-up would actually look a lot higher. Okay. And when I would ask the person to come up into a push-up, they end up looking like this. So a lot has to happen in order to lift, and a lot of times people will like do things where still kind of do one of those to come up, right? And a lot of times when I'm looking at if one hip doesn't come up with the other. What can I push up? So say I got a guy and you couldn't do that, I would go down to the cheekbones, you couldn't do that, I would go down to the chin from there and then like a regular push-up position. But it's like, when it comes to the scoring, this would be a three if they can do it. If you have to go down, you take it down by one um, score. Is, it, is that healthy to push up like that with your hands so forward? Depends. <laughs> right, like it, it can be definitely an exercise, but it's a very advanced exercise. Yeah. And usually when I get people to do this, it's like literally just one rep. Okay. And a lot of people, when I get them set up, they're like, they start laughing. They're like, fuck, I don't even know how I'm gonna do this. But I'm like, I just want to see what your body does. So can they do knees down? Um, like I just tell them, like, I just want you to come up as, as oh, one. Okay. So like for women, usually what I see, because like for them, you start them at the cheekbones, mm -hmm. and a lot of times it's like that, mm -hmm. right? So they don't know how to engage and stabilize their spine with their pelvis in order for it to come back up. Mm -hmm. So when I see that, it's like one, they shouldn't be doing push-ups off the ground because it's like, you're not doing them any favors, you're not actually getting them stronger. Mm -hmm. I would elevate the crap out of their push-ups, but now that I see that their hip is kind of like sagging with the rest of their body, like it's kind of a stretch, but most likely they don't have good pelvic core control at all. And you see that a lot with women. Mm -hmm. So it's like teaching them like basic breathing patterns and pelvic floor control in order for that to like come up as one. Um, and then again, when you see like the hip seg on one side, I start thinking about what other things we saw in the FMS that deal with the hip. So maybe that, say, left hip that sagged to kind of get back up from the push-up was also the same side when they did the hurdle step where they were kind of like, oh my god, and now you start seeing a pattern, right? And like I've even seen in screens where like even when I did the inline lunge, like one side the person was completely fine, the other side they go, they get down and they're like, they can't get back up. So it's like huge asymmetry. And you'll start seeing like a lot of the stuff in the FMS kind of play on top of each other. And they just give you more information on that. Mm -hmm. Questions? Yeah.
But you said start at the forehead, but for women at the cheeks? At cheeks, yeah. And then if they can't do it from there, you just go down by one, right? Um, so there's also a clearing exam, but you can do it after, right? So, so one question. Yeah. If, if, because I see a lot of women like peel themselves off the ground when it yeah. comes to a push up. So that just means poor stability and, and not being able to connect. It's not, yeah. It doesn't mean that they don't have a strength. Yes and no. So I look at it as like any movement. So this goes back to my talk about Boyle's core thing. So in order to have really good core stability, it all starts here. Mm -hmm. Your arms are just an extension of that and your legs are an extension of that. So yes, a push-up does require strength, but it starts from here. If this doesn't work, then there's going to be some weird kind of movement pattern, mm -hmm. but it all starts with learning how to utilize this properly. And like anytime you see someone from Aura that goes into the clinic and like them trying to breathe properly, they can't breathe. So it's like now you know their diaphragm doesn't work. Most likely their pelvic floor hasn't been. How do you know they can't breathe? Simple like like what I do with someone in an assessment, like when I do a full assessment, I go one hand on your belly, one hand on your chest, breathe for me three times, and they're like this. I'm like, the fuck was that? <laughs> right? Where it should be. Right? Like they breathe into their chest. So like a good breath through the diaphragm starts here and ends here, but most people do it in the reverse, right? What if you have reverse breathing? Then they're fucked. <laughs> no. Like, <laughs> have you ever encountered that? Someone with reverse breathing? Yeah. Like most of, most most people have a breathing disorder, right? So as I teach them how to breathe through their diaphragm properly. Then I go, can you breathe into my hands here? Because your diaphragm should be able to expand all the way around you, right? So a proper breath is like, I get people thinking of you're gonna have the, this little crest of your hand mm -hmm. underneath your rib cage, mm -hmm. the fingers in the front, and then your thumb in the back, yeah. and you should be able to breathe in all of those directions yeah. to stabilize, right? So all the time with the low back people that have pain, it's because they don't know how to use this to protect mm -hmm. their spine. Mm -hmm. So I tell them, like, if you think of a Coke can that's unopened, you can put it on the floor, step on it with your whole body weight, it's not gonna go anywhere because of the compressed air that circulates the entire can. The moment you open it, pour it out, you step on it, yeah. so that's the analogy I give people when that's they try to do something heavy, yeah. How do you get your like stabilization? If you look at powerlifters, they have huge ass bellies, but they're super lean. It's just because their sport requires so much spinal stability, which comes from their diaphragm. So now their diaphragm grew to a point where it can extend that far. So then what was, what's the point of the belt with these? It's a training tool in a sense of like, it doesn't create stability, but it helps with stability with the diaphragm. So if I went to go push you over, your natural like reaction is to resist against me. If I put a belt pulling against my diaphragm, the only way for me to breathe is against it, yeah. right? It's just like a feedback tool, mm -hmm. right? So going back to that idea, like if you look at kids, their shirts off running around, they have like pop bellies, because they know how to use their diaphragm, but like as we age, we just learn how to breathe through here, and then people get tight necks all through here because they're constantly doing this. And when you train people, they're always kind of like they start rowing and they naturally do this as they're breathing. You're like, relax, they're like, oh wow, 
And you're going back to it because that's a habit, right? So it's a motor pattern that you have to like reteach. And a lot of times when I start teaching people how to breathe, they're like, Like they don't even know how to like get that mind connection with their breath, right? So there's different positions that help, mm -hmm. um, like crocodile breathing, where you have um, your belly on the floor, hands like this, forehead on, and I always tell people like breathe into the ground like you're trying to push yourself off, mm -hmm. right? And then when you start thinking of breathing with general uh, general population, a lot of them are super stressed, high anxiety, can't sleep, and I tell every single patient like if you can't fall asleep, just 30 of these. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is like the vagus nerves, like one of the biggest nerves in your body when it comes to your nervous system, is directly inserted from top down into your diaphragm. So every diaphragmic breath is stimulating that nerve that is responsible for calming you down. So no wonder people fall asleep mm -hmm. or feel super relaxed in yoga when yes. you're focusing on your breath. Yeah. Right? So it's all intertwined, all starting from diaphragm. Right? So it's like, when you start explaining things like that to like clients, they're like, holy shit, yeah. like, they, they get, you get a little bit more buy-in. Like, I look at the FMS as more buy-in of what you do, and you actually, like, kind of separate yourself from other people. Mm -hmm. um, clearance exam. So this one's done afterwards. Um, so with low back people, when they finish the thing, you just tell them to bring your hands down, and you ask them to extend to here, and you ask them, is there any pain in your low back? If they say no, then you're good. So people can get low back pain either based on flexion or extension. A lot of times people have pain in flexion stuff. So extension is what they kind of want. Like most times people will say like, oh, it's just tight. That's fine, but if there's like sharp pain, then that's where you want to. They can't even get to that point. They're what, whatever, they, what, how far it is oh, matter. Okay. You want to see how their spine reacts into extension. Okay. Um, questions? Thoughts? Well, I'm really liking that diagram point. <laughs> yeah, like it's key for everything, right? Like, if you, another analogy I give to people of how strong a diaphragm is, is if you look at like gymnasts that do an iron cross, watch their diaphragm go. It goes like crazy. Mm. If you go to Cirque du Soleil and the guys that are shirtless that do like, yeah. Human flags again, diaphragm going like crazy, mm. right? Like breath is everything, mm. right? Um, so rotor stability. Focus on the multiplane pelvis core, shoulder, uh, shoulder, shoulder girdle stability while combined with an upper and lower extremity movement. So this tests neuromuscular coordination, reflex stabilization in the transverse plane, as well as coordinated efforts of both mobility and stability in the climbing slash crawling pattern. So this shows so much in movement, and this is where a lot of people suck at. So essentially, um, this is the test, so essentially the bird dog. Mm -hmm. So you're testing a lot of things. So when I look at the bird dog, it's one, seeing if they can uh, stabilize their core with a dynamic movement and when you think of going like opposite arm opposite leg it should be very very easy for the individual because we walk opposite arm opposite leg every day but when you test to stabilize that people for some reason just have terrible control 
So one, we're seeing if the core can stabilize the spine, staying neutral, but also the opposite hip, if I'm reaching this way, if this hip can stabilize. Because a lot of times when I see when people try to do this movement, if they have uh, a poor hip stabilizer, they lean over to it to compensate, mm -hmm. right? So say we had that individual that was doing the hurdle step, the left hip was kind of unstable, and then we did the T push up, and again, that hip is kind of sagging. And then we go into this one and I'm doing this side and I'm leaning over. Mm -hmm. Then it's like always going back to that left hip that needs more stability. And usually sometimes on the other side, it's like maybe a mobility issue or it's completely fine. Mm -hmm. Then the other thing I look at, um, the rotary stability test is you can also see if there's a mobility issue. So an example, like with Russ, he had terrible shoulders. So when he comes to here, and it comes in because he has terrible shoulder mobility. Mm -hmm. He stops here and he's trying to get his hip mm -hmm. to alternate, right? So a lot of times you can also see what their compensation pattern is. And sometimes you'll get people who have really tight hips and really tough shoulders where they can't even like get to the middle. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, seeing if people can actually extend their hip without doing this constantly. So you'll see a lot of people do this yeah. and then back in so that's telling me that every time they try to extend their hip it actually goes low back hamstring glute and if someone really wanted to develop their glutes they would learn how to extend their hip ass hamstring then low back mm -hmm. so like i can't remember what day it is in our classes but we have like the band and they're just yeah. doing this but everyone's like i know i know that's awful right so like <laughs> essentially like that's just an advanced exercise form so when I teach the bird dog to like war members that you know done the bird dog in classes, they're like, why is this so hard? And I'm like, you're actually doing it right. So how I coach like the bird dog is you've we've done the bird dog, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So like literally kicking that heel, not past their bum. Because again, like a good hip has 20 degrees of extension. Beyond that, it's just all a little back, right? Um, so yeah, you get the person extending just to in line with their bum opposite hand goes and then you're also with the other hand engaging your lat and that becomes like an actual really good spinal stability exercise um so like with dr stuart mcgill um the bird dog is like his go-to with anyone that's low back pain and anytime you see someone with low back pain you give them the bird dog they do terribly because they don't know how to use this mm -hmm. so it's like now as a coach you're thinking that i'm going to go over breathing with them I have to teach them how to do the bird dog properly. And then they start mastering those two, things start feeling a lot better, and then they translate to harder things like deadlifting and crap like that. Mm -hmm. But it goes like back to like if the person can't breathe properly, and you know, Sally Sue, mom of three, goes to pick up her kid that's like 30 pounds, and she has no core activation whatsoever. It's gonna constantly go here, here, wherever else. But yeah, it's a full circle of just crap. Mm -hmm. um, but this tells me a lot. Um, so now there's another clearing test for that. So say they finish the bird dog after you just get them into like a child's pose and you ask if there's low back pain in that. So this is to test if there's any kind of flexion-based pain. I've never been exposed to someone who's had low back pain in the child's pose. Mm -hmm. Actually, maybe it's just been only once. And that kind of speaks volume, like if they ever get pain in the child's pose, then it's like they definitely need to go see somebody. Yeah. Um, 
even extension, like definitely need to go see somebody. But um, any questions on that one? Yeah. All right. Pain. So pain is associated with behaviors that reduce systematic gathering of objective information. It produces apprehension, inconsistency, and magnification, uh, magnification of fear and denial. So if you think of that definition, if someone had pain in their knee, their body's going to figure out a way to go around it constantly. So a lot of times when we train people, and I've seen it over the years of my career, People will never go get their knee checked out. They're gonna just work around it. And a lot of times they'll create more problems than solutions. Sometimes there's ways to go around it where someone's like, they've had their knee done three times for their ACL and it's like, hey, that's the best it's gonna get. But if it's like a brand new thing and you're like, go see somebody, go see somebody and they don't do anything, it's somewhere down the chain is gonna take the grunt of the work. And it's gonna cause a lot of issues. So, like, say again, you're squatting, and that knee is the culprit. Some weird thing's gonna to happen to avoid it, right? Constantly. That's why, like, when you roll your ankle and you're trying to walk, your body compensates the movement for you to just keep going. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, a lot of people, like, I look at ankle, like people rolling their ankles. It's like actually a pretty serious injury because what happens if you don't deal with that scar tissue properly, scar tissue is like dumb tissue. Mm. It's gonna change your gait and now what else is gonna be affected down the road? Right, like literally our bodies are so connected when it comes to movement, it's ridiculous. Uh, so yeah, should movement uh, patterns develop? Oh, what did I do? Uh, <coughs> so, a good example of pain is like, say the person yeah, hurt their ankle or knee, never dealt with it, body adapts to it. Um, that's where you'll see weird movement patterns in the gym. So like stuff that you can't explain, like say someone's constantly back squatting like this, and you're like, what the fuck is going on with this person? Like their brain reprogrammed itself that because of that knee injury, this is the least amount of pain that's gonna go into a squatting pattern without too much knee flexion, and that becomes your new normal. Now when you start training them and picking exercises, you have to reprogram years of shitty movement patterns to get there. And I've seen like pretty good um, results when it comes um, to that. Like a good example is I had one kid that I started training at 16, and he was a rugby player, he was constantly injured. And like his toe touch, for example, was like literally this. But I started training him three days a week for like four years and he was able to like get down here. Like again, we didn't do any stretching, we didn't like, it was just good training, corrective exercises, and things like that. And then he started getting less injured, less pains and aches. So really like exercise could be like any modality of Health, right, rather than like constantly going to massage or like constantly stretching your hamstrings like yeah. this, and it's like nothing's happening. Like exercise has a huge influence on our body, and if it doesn't help, that's where I tell people to uh, uh, refer out. But we can kind of go into screening if you want. Sure. Yeah. Questions before we go to the gym. 
Ugh, it's gonna be so cold. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, um, so. Can I film this too? Yeah, do it. Why not? Well, I'm gonna like email this out. Oh, you are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because like Nicole and um, Sydney couldn't come, so yeah. I'll record it, uh, send it to you, and I'm gonna quiz you on a couple things to make sure you <laughs> watched it. Um, so yeah, overhead squat. You want shoulder width apart with the feet, and again, toe straight on purpose. The dowel is going to start on top of the head, and you want to make sure the arms are at 90 degrees, so they're not like this or too far out. From there, you're going to press above your head, and you ask for every single movement in the FMS three repetitions. And essentially, what you're going to do is you're going to come down into a squat, and then come right back up. How far from the feet? Hip width? Hip width, yeah. So, a lot of times, you won't see a pretty good squat like that. What you'll usually see is people kind of coming here and like maybe rotating, kind of getting stuck, or they'll kind of like do one of these, right? So there's a lot of different variations. So anytime I see the dowel come forward, there's some sort of like um, T-spine extension and shoulder mobility problem. And anytime you see kind of like a rotation, there could be like a hip issue, shoulder issue. So you kind of have to always see so one thing when you're doing an overhead is some people like their armpits are flipped outwards and um, I've been told in the past to like roll the armpit forward mm -hmm. to hold. Yep. So does that make a difference? Yeah, so again like if I really wanted to cheat this, if I just like held it loosey goosey, mm -hmm. like my shoulders are just gonna do whatever they want, but if I like gripped it, like Kind of like that centration of the shoulder. The shoulder just naturally goes into any time of create tension, and now I can probably get it a little bit better than I did before. Right? Um, I feel like I feel like people can squeeze though and apply tension, but not have anything. I tell people like death grip, like literally death grip, and then they're like, "Why is this so hard?" I'm like, mm. "You're working on the stuff that you're weak at." But um, where was I going with that? Um, so for a perfect score, like if you look at the side, so that's another thing, when you look at the squat, mm -hmm. three repetitions, you're looking at in front of them, mm -hmm. it's actually dead on, and then at like a 45 degree angle, and also like at a 90 degree angle. So like the first one, like I did, I'd go here, and say you moved, you'd see me like this at a 45, and then at a 90, mm -hmm. right? To get a perfect three, kind of starting from the top down, is if I start going down, I look really, really good, but now the dowel is in front of my toes, mm -hmm. it's not a three anymore, it'll be a two, right? If, for example, I just like get to here and stop, but the dowel's still behind me, kind of, or in the line, that's a two. Like a one would be kind of like, mm -hmm. like it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, from there, you see that they're kind of limited in their squat, that's where you would take the FMS board out, have it down on the floor, get their heels elevated with the same thing, mm -hmm. and now you get them to squat. Usually they'll come a little bit lower. So now I'm thinking to myself, okay, so it could be actually an ankle thing, so when we were talking about the squat, you need enough adequate uh, ankle dorsiflexion to squat properly. Mm -hmm. So then the next thing from there, I'm getting ahead of myself. Say, you know, their first squat was kind of like just really stuck. 
you get them on here, they get a little bit lower. And then what I would do, you actually get the demo out of the question, you cross their arms, and you see if that changes anything. Say if that changes a lot, then there's some sort of T-spining against shoulder mobility issue. So now you have a lot of information already kind of starting. So now I want to rule out if it's the actual ankle issue. And then you go back to your board again and test their ankle mobility. So for that one, you would go toe at the zero, get into a half kneel, and then you just ask them to drive their knee as far forward as possible, and then you measure with the dowel, right? People will cheat with this by going inwards to get a little bit further, and like everyone will always lift that back heel to get a little bit further, like especially men, because they're so competitive, they'll like, they'll like start pushing down on their ankle to get further. So say their ankles are limited, so, this goes back to another um, assessment certification called the TPI. Did we talk about that all last time? So the TPI is a golf-specific um, assessment tool, and there they test uh, ankle mobility, where if you take the person's four fingers and put it in front of their toe, they should be able to clear that. If they don't clear that, then they don't have adequate mobility so again that's kind of a general thing but for the FMS because you have the numbers that like you can be like all right this person has so for me I'm around 11 whatever this is and then say on the other side there's an asymmetry where I'm like only at six again now you make a mental note because that plays a huge effect and role when it comes to squatting and lunging mm -hmm because it gives you a lot of information kind of down the line. Um, trying to think what else we need to cover. Any questions? Mm, so you can elevate hips in a, or, uh, heels in a squat yep. based off depth. Like yep. if you see somebody not going all the way down, yeah. you can recommend elevating them. Yeah. And the other thing too is say we tested ankles and they were both good. So now you're like, okay, it's probably more of maybe a hip issue or a T-spine issue. Mm -hmm. So if it's not the ankles, I go to the hips. Mm -hmm. So now I'm thinking, okay, when they're squatting, it would probably help them if they took a wider stance with their toes out, because that gives you more hip external rotation, which will allow you to get further into the squat, right? So this goes again back to anatomy. Like so many people have different hips, different Length of femur. So in my family, everyone's like six foot, and I'm just five and a half. So if people are fine squatting with pretty feet close together and and yeah, why not? down, uh, but maybe they're like more forward. Yeah. Should they then try that? Yeah. A lot of times it's just trial and error, right? Um, so like in my case, what I brought up, like my family is six foot and I'm five nine, and I wear size 11 shoes. Like I'm supposed to be tall, and like, <laughs> didn't drink enough milk, didn't eat enough pierogies, I don't know. Um, so when you look at like my anatomy, I have a long torso, long arms, but my femur bones are short, right? So when it comes to deadlifting, if I did a conventional deadlift, I'm almost like, in line with the floor, right? So that's not the best uh, biomechanics. Mm -hmm. But if I go into a sumo deadlift, 
I'm closer to the floor, I have less distance to travel, and I'm more upright, and I can use my lever legs a lot better. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like powerlifters and Olympic weightlifters, they're all around five foot five. That's like the best height to be at. So when it comes to like squatting, it's a lot of trial and error with the person. But it's like it goes back to this. If they don't have enough thoracic extension, and now you're placing them under a bar, and they don't have that, usually what happens is they start tipping forward, right? So there's a lot of stuff like that that comes together. But uh, so on a straight leg, a deadlift, you don't want to be parallel to the ground. So again, I don't like I don't like the straight leg deadlift because most people don't know how to extend their hips properly. Yeah. So going back to rotary stability, you know that they do this every single time, how are they going to extend through their hips if you know that they extend through the lower back every single time, mm -hmm. right? So the, I kind of look at exercise as risk over reward. Okay, we're gonna do the Romanian deadlift, like stiff like a deadlift. Then I'm knowing that exercise has a lot of issues with general population, I ask myself, what am I trying to accomplish with that? What do you, what do you, what do you want to try to accomplish with a stiff like deadlift? Okay, so the goal is to get nice hamstrings. What other exercises that have a lower risk factor that would develop hamstrings? Right, so like a hamstring curl, right? And a lot of times when you look at like anything barbell related, people are always gonna try to load it as heavy as possible because that's what they think is gonna make mm -hmm. their hamstrings or them stronger. But if you look aesthetically, if you look at like Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was like beyond his time when it kind of came to bodybuilding, when he went through phases of like say hypertrophy and they wanted to really develop hamstrings, like he's at like maybe 60% of his max, he would never go past that. But when you give a general population a barbell and you're like, hey, we're doing 12 reps, for sure they're gonna load the bar as much as possible because they think that's what's gonna actually grow their muscle, but so what is growing muscle for us? So you go into like hypertrophy training, where like rep schemes, again, this is such a skewed like, there's so much debate about it, but typically hypertrophy training can be anywhere from between eight and 15 reps based on the research to get maximal muscle growth. But then you have other factors of like nutrition, genetics, like sleep, like there's so many different things for that. But even if you look at how Arnold Schwarzenegger trained to look the way he did, he went through different phases of like endurance work, hypertrophy, power, strength, like he went through it all. And like he did stuff like where he trained barefoot and no one trained barefoot in the 70s. He was like one of the first guys to do it. Like there's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. So I always look at exercise selection, like based on the FMS, like Sure, the person wants a back squat, but if it looks like a melted candle when you assess them, like you tell them, like, hey, I know your goal is to back squat, but we're going to do these things first to build it, yeah. right? Um, as long as you like tell people that's kind of the goal in mind, but again, it's like, why does the person want a back squat? And they're like, I don't know, get stronger on my legs. There's so many other things you can do mm -hmm. without possibly injuring yourself and getting to a point where like their back squat's like a cart, like. <laughs> and he's like 225. I'm like, you're like that's like all you can do. Like there's 
if he tries to go heavier, it's, he's not going to be able to do it. So now he's doing shitty reps like this and like quarter squatting every single time. Bench press is scary too. Yeah, so it's like he would benefit a lot more when it comes to improving his fitness if he did like a goblet squat where it's more self-correcting. And say even if he gave him the 100 pound dumbbell and told him, we're going to squat down for four Mississippis. And then when you get to the bottom, you're going to count another four Mississippis and then drive up as fast as possible. You're going to do that 12 times. He's going to be crushed for the next four days. Mm -hmm. But his back's not, his back's going to feel really good. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's just like training smart. Mm -hmm. Right? I look at training people as like professional athletes. So if I had Usain Bolt in front of me, like I'm not going to do back squats with the guy. Because if I injure him or he doesn't feel good, he's not going to perform and I lose my job. Mm -hmm. So if I injure someone on the training floor because I think barbell back squats are the best exercise in the world and they're not able to go pick up their kid because their back is tweaked, I failed at my job. Right? So it's really just like most people in there just want to move and feel better. So, so we're starting with the overhead squat and then you move straight to the ankle. Yeah, so that's the first one. It's like, this doesn't look good. You go to the ankles. If that still doesn't look like it, say it improved or yeah. didn't improve, then yeah. you lose the dowel and cross the arms. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, like I said last time, is each of these assessments start before they actually get started. So a good example um, is I started training Melanie and I got her to do the overhead squat. And like, it was literally like this when she started, but her left, no, right, look, in my case it's left, but her right elbow is like hyperextended, mm -hmm. like this. So when she goes overhead, mm -hmm. it's like that, and then that's her same side where her shoulder's also messed up. Mm -hmm. So it's like that person most likely is not going to feel good pressing overhead when there's something going on with the elbow mm -hmm. and going on with her shoulder blade. And then on top of that, it's like any other overhead movement like pull-ups is probably not going to feel really good for her. So now you're getting really specific to the person and say you start training that person knowing all these limitations in the FMS for three months consistently and then you go, hey, how's your shoulder feeling? Most of the time they're like, I haven't really like, had any issues. Why would the pull-up be an issue in that case? So what's the difference of me holding a dumbbell here and pressing and coming back down where I grab onto something and pull my own body weight up and uh, I go back down? Well, it's the same movement. I thought you were talking like holding a barbell overhead. Not like say like say I'm say I'm holding a barbell to do dumb um, barbell um, shoulder presses. Yeah. The same movement pattern of me pulling myself up, okay. right? Like that shoulder and elbow is not going to feel good. Another thing I see with guys with like terrible shoulder mobility is they'll cheat it by when they pull they'll do this thing, and a lot of times it puts a lot of pressure on the inside middle part of their elbow, and they get um, golfer's elbow constantly. Right, so because they can't fully extend and get their shoulder back, they'll kind of do this weird pattern of pulling in this way, mm -hmm. and then you get pain in their elbow. Mm -hmm. um, what time is it right now? 12, 39. Okay. Um, I think it would be a good spot to end there, because mm -hmm. I don't want to eat and stuff like that, but um, yeah. the squat shows a lot. Does, does that kind of make sense though? Yeah. Okay. Uh, any questions before we kind of finish? Okay. Yeah, so the next time we'll go into like the whole thing, and I think it'll be good because everyone will probably be here. Yeah.